High heart rate variability is what you need to thrive under pressure. It signifies the body's ability to quickly ramp up and feel a full range of emotions and energy, including stress when needed, and then to swiftly and efficiently let go of that stress and recover. This dynamic allows you to effectively prepare for performance situations, navigate any challenges that arise, and then swiftly recover in between peak moments. So those are the words of my guest today, Dr. Leah Lagos, who is a licensed clinical psychologist who specializes in health and performance psychology and is known for her pioneering work in HRV biofeedback. She treats a broad range of disorders and performance challenges, and her expertise includes strategies to reduce anxiety, boost resiliency to adversity, and enhance health. She also offers a framework for clients to clarify their needs, achieve their goals, and increase their effectiveness. She's also the author of the book, Heart, Breath, Mind, Train Your Heart to Conquer Stress and Achieve Success. So today we're going to be talking extensively about the nervous system, about your HRV, uh, about understanding some of the stats around heart, heart rate variability and the biofeedback uh, that, that you can get from that and understanding some of that data, but also understanding how that impacts the rest of your life because a lot of research is starting to show that HRV is one of the single most important biofeedback stats that we can possibly uh, begin to read. So it, from what a, a lot of the research is showing, it, it's one of the primary indicators of health in the moment, but also a primary indicator of health in long term. So it gives a sense of, of, of your health from a, a longevity perspective. But increasing and improving and working on your HRV is also great for stress reduction, for uh, improving your relationship with your nervous system. It's also great for increasing your ability to perform at work, within sports, public speaking, at home with your family, reducing stress in your relationship. So being able to work on your HRV is a very powerful tool. It's something that I've been playing around with for the last year. So it really is an honor and a privilege to be talking to one of the researchers, one of the physicians that is pioneering uh, this technology, this information, this research. So I am excited for this conversation. There's a tremendous amount of information in it. I hope that you enjoy it. If you want to learn more about it, let me know. Hit me up online, either uh, at Mantalks on Instagram. Uh, definitely let me know. Leave me a rating. Leave me a review. Leave me a comment. Uh, let me know what angles and avenues you would like for me to explore in the future when it comes to these types of topics. So with that in mind, and without any further delay, please welcome Dr. Leah Lagos. Pleasure to be here. I'm doing well. Good, good. Wonderful. Well, I stumbled across your work online a while ago, and it's such an interesting body of work, as I've re relayed in the, in the intro for all the listeners. And we're going to dive deep into HRV biofeedback and, I mean, a number of things, how it relates to performance, anxiety, mental health, physical health. But before we do that, before we dive into what we're going to talk about today, I would love for you to just share a story about a defining moment in your life that has made you who you are today. It's a recent moment, but but one that coincides very much with what 
I believe is at the core of all of our states of flow, which is our heart. And I have a grandfather who's very near and dear, lived through the, the depression and put himself, like, earned his own rent at 13 years old. And as a man, I have so much love and adoration for. And he's going through some health issues. He's 95 years old. And I had a chance in case his, his health reduces to say all of the things you would want to say to one of the most important people in your lives. And I will tell you, as much of a moment of heartbreak, it was also a moment of flow, that connection, that love. I mean, I will carry that with me, Connor, for my entire life. And I believe we can tap into these states. that They're imprinted in us after we've experienced them. And it's one of the things that I teach clients to do. Everyone has those moments and to be able to access them over and over to shift their physiology to create a particular internal state. Yeah, thank you. I mean, beautifully said. And, and I think it's such a good example. I, I appreciate you bringing in the just the idea of tapping into flow states and what that might look like and the, the heart's role in that. You know, the heart is connected to the brain. I believe the, I believe there's a neural connection into the brain wired. And so there's many different components that heart plays in terms of regulating our nervous system and all that kind of stuff that we're going to talk about. But selfishly, I'm also interested in this because as someone who's currently writing a book and, you know, still sometimes deals with the, the pangs of, of ADD and distraction, <laughs> you know, the distraction of our current world and, and what we have in front of us. I'm very interested in this. And so let's just start with, with the basics a little bit, because I think it's good to cover this, because I think the term HRV, heart rate variability, has been thrown around quite a bit. And, you know, some people believe that it's that it really is potent. Other people are not too sure about what role it plays. And so I would just love for you to break down what is the sort of basic definition for you of, of HRV, of heart rate variability, and then a little bit about its role within our internal ecosystem. So we think of HRV as a measure that there's several ways to measure it, but it's a measure of autonomic flexibility, the ability for your body to experience stress and respond flexibly, meaning recovering quickly, so that you can essentially let go, reset, and operate at your baseline. That is so important for the world right now. I believe we are in a sympathetic tilt, the entire world, given the trauma that has occurred globally in the last year. Mm. And whether you are a female tennis player at the French Open with anxiety, whether you are a mom of three with a whole <laughs> tribe of Zoom <laughs> school kids, <laughs> or you are you know, someone, Fortune 500 company, running a business with a lot of volatility in the environment. That ability to be able to let go and reset becomes invaluable. Mm. So heart rate variability is a measure of that autonomic flexibility, but Increasing research, Connor, and this fascinates me, is the integration between the heart and mind. And HRV not only demarcates the body's resilience and adaptability, it also demarcates blood flow to the brain, which we obviously want as much of. During stressful moments, the blood vessels tend to shunt blood flow as an old reptilian response. 
And actually, we want as much blood flow and oxygen flow to, to go in so that we can actually operate from a place of cognitive dexterity. So that cognitive dexterity, that ability to shift positions, to see things from different perspectives, to actually inhibit our own biases or our own egos, <laughs> actually becomes mediated by our heart and how we react under pressure. So there are two ways to measure HRV. One is just a very common statistic called SDNN, standard deviation of NN intervals, which are the peaks of the heart rate curve and the time between them. But as a clinician, I look at the peak to trough, the max to min. So when we inhale, our heart rate goes up. And when we exhale, it goes down. And just a very easy, raw way to look at HRV trends and, and also gains in HRV is by looking at those changes in the peak to trough, those actual heart rate oscillations. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. And so the standard way, like if you have a whoop strap like me or an Apple watch, I'm guessing that those use the the first iteration of tracking the HRV. Is that correct? Correct. But there are some mobile devices that are available now that allow you to see your heart rate line live. So you can actually look at those heart rate changes as you're doing breathing. You want those oscillations to be like big ocean-like waves. And what's really incredible is that when people start to see that they can produce certain heart rate waves on demand, there's actually a psychological confidence that comes, especially in a world right now that feels so, at points, uncertain and unpredictable. Hmm. So again, just to sort of recap some of the foundation of this, because I don't think everyone is familiar with HRV yet, the basic idea, and I would love for you to extend, extend and expand on this because I'm about to give a very layman's version of it, but you know, wherever you are in age, the basic premise is that a sort of higher HRV rating is going to mean sort of better heart health, better blood flow, et cetera. And then a lower HRV rating is going to be, I don't know how else to say it, but not as optimal a, of a setting. And so can you just unpack that a little bit in much more eloquence and detail than I so Neanderthal just did? <laughs> so in the 1950s, Hon and Lee found heart rate variability was a biomarker to predict the health of unborn fetuses for these, this baby that's not born yet to be a healthy baby in, in the flesh. HRV also became, um, in time, a biomarker of healthy living adults. Higher HRVs associated, again, with autonomic flexibility, better health, better focus, and even there's a large amount of sports research that suggests better performance, athletically and also cognitively. And lower HRV has been correlated with all sorts of different conditions, from hypertension to myocardial infarction, heart disease, and an array of what they call autonomic disorders related to blood pressure, related to anxiety, panic attacks, for instance. So ultimately, higher HRV is better, lower HRV we want to address. But even if your HRV is good, Connor, <laughs> there is utility in making it even better. Why? Because it's, it's like taking a car that drives and drives well and giving it more precision right? Around curves. So life is a little less effortful. Those moments of stress, just it doesn't throw you off so much. It doesn't take so much energy. So a lot of people 
will come to me even just for energy management. When you have those big dips in a day where you start out with tons of energy, but by the end of the day, it's like a fourth of you. And some people who are just incredibly powerful and it's really common. And I, I, I have a lot of people that contact me from all over the world with interests in just energy management. And you can start to do that with interesting. Okay. So maybe just give us a sense of, because I've been playing around with this myself. I've, you know, I've had the whoop strap for a while and been monitoring my HRV based on, you know, what foods I eat, when I eat those foods. You know, if I'm eating late at night, I've noticed that it impacts my HRV. You know, when I work out, my stress levels, those types of things can impact my HRV. But I'm hoping that you can give us a bit of, a, again, a, a more robust understanding of what is going to have a net negative impact on our HRV. Is, is from what I believe I've read, things like high salt diets, high sugar diets, those types of things can have a, a negative impact. But yeah. You're, you have the million dollar question, Connor. <laughs> Everybody, I think, from my perspective, should be looking at their HRV data, seeing their general range. Maybe for some people, their range is between 60 and 80. Other people, smaller range, maybe it's 40 to 50, whatever your range is. Having a sense of the variables that contribute to the highest end of your range and lowest end. So the first part is just tracking your range and getting an idea of your your general HRV at baseline, and then what the highest number in your range is over a month and what the lowest number is. And then you start to say, hmm, I would like to hack it. So if you can believe this, of course, I love this, Connor, like, like, like this is like playing a game of tennis for me. <laughs> I just love it. So I've tracked through two pregnancies, two births, <laughs> HRV, the dips and peaks and what personally has, has led to faster recovery, certainly after women give birth, their HRV dips, and there's many mitigating factors, but it becomes almost a science to understand your body. So there are some general standard kinds of variables that will reduce your HRV. Alcohol, for instance. For some people, it decimates HRV. Really sensitive people who, and this is not a psychological term, it's a physiological term. They have sensitive bodies. Those people, by the way, Connor, tend to see things in the world that other people don't and, and can have really interesting lives, making predictions, seeing patterns, those kinds of things, because their body is wired to be more sensitive. But when they ingest things like alcohol, you see just this massive drop, you know, over a, a 10 point drop in a few hours. And so having a sense of, of what your specific, let's say, HRV detractors are and HRV enhancers. You want both, right? So talking about the detractors, some of the standard ones are lack of sleep, <laughs> alcohol use. Sometimes if people are not eating properly, you will see if someone has an eating disorder or is just eating not enough for their system, you will also see a lower HRV. Um, you can see lower HRV. I've seen several patients the few days following a vaccine, COVID vaccine, HRV drops. It rebounds, but but essentially the autonomic nervous system is under attack with that vaccine as it develops the antibodies. And you see the body <laughs> responding. So medicine vaccines can sometimes have a detraction impact. You can also see the opposite. 
I've, I've seen actually people with ADHD take ADHD medicine and, and their HRV is up just a little bit, which is interesting, right? So going back to detractors, we've talked about alcohol. We've talked about sleep, over-exercise, meaning not enough recovery. You're exercising too much. That certainly can be a detractor. Stress, we all have it. But certainly, you know, HRV, your body can't scream, you're too stressed, take a break. (laughs) But it can give you a drop in HRV, which is your body's way of saying you really need to just take a time out, spend a little more time with self-care. And then this becomes a really interesting metric for self-regulation, that you learn to adjust your lifestyle, just small tweaks based on what you know about how your body responds and interacts with the world based on HRV. I'll tell you a quick story. (laughs) I have monitored my HRV throughout time and looking for different variables, more creative variables that modify and impact HRV. And one of them that was really profound was taking my daughters to school to drop them off. One would think, you know, that would create stress. You're trying to get two kids to school. You have patients waiting in your waiting room. It was the opposite. Taking them to school, my HRV not only was significantly higher on those mornings, it sustained at a higher rate throughout the day. So I changed my schedule. (laughs) So that was embedded in my schedule. Interpersonal connection, Connor, actually becomes a really interesting variable on HRV. And that some people, not all of them, but will see increases in their HRV when they feel deep connections with with their environment. So it's a really sensitive metric as well. It can be a lot of fun to explore and and to do cycles of exploration. Just because you've identified variables one month, maybe six months later, you you do another dive. Yeah, it's, it's really interesting. I mean, I, I stopped drinking alcohol probably about a year and a half ago. Maybe, maybe more than that, maybe coming up on two years. I haven't really been keeping track, but I do remember that before, and I didn't drink a lot. I mean, I would have a, you know, a beer once a week at a social gathering or something like that. But I did notice that my HRV was impacted by having alcohol. And I'm wondering, and, and then it's, it's actually, what's, what's been fascinating is it's much more stable now that I'm not having any form of alcohol at all. So is that just because something like alcohol is a suppressant for our system? Is there a correlate between the, the, like the impact of alcohol on our nervous system or, or like, what are some of those things actually doing within the heart rate that's causing that decrease or, or, or compression of the HRV? It's a a great question. The physiology, the impact of alcohol on the physiology, something I would defer to my colleagues at Rutgers, the Vashilos. And Afghani Vashilos is my dear mentor. He actually was the one to identify resonant frequency with cosmonauts. And and we've been replicating the use of resonant frequency through HRV biofeedback, heart rate variability biofeedback ever since. But they have conducted, and and Bronya Vashilos is still at Rutgers, just incredible research to really understand the mechanisms, the physiological mechanisms by which variables impact heart rate variability. One interesting point, though, that more recent research has pointed to is that breathing is not the only way to create a state of resonance in the body. And that movement at your specific rate of resonance, meaning if you have a four in inhale and a six 
sorry, a four second inhale and a six second exhale. You can actually mimic that same resonance with a four second movement of your arm and a six second movement. That is it. That is interesting. When you, when you're talking about resonance, can you maybe define that a little bit more for? Because I think that that's an important piece, and I've I've read a good amount of research that talks about that four second inhale and six second exhale being something that people can use as a means of down-regulating between sympathetic nervous system and the parasympathetic. So actually moving out of that, you know, maybe anxiety or stress response, that fight, flight, or freeze response and back down into a state of, of homeostasis. But I'm, I'm hoping that you can just maybe give us a little bit more context for resonance because that sounds fairly important. <laughs> sure, sure. I love it. So resonance, it's a different experience for every single person. The rate that elicits resonance in the body, resonance is really defined as 0.1 hertz. It's a definable frequency in the heart. And the goal is to elicit it through a specific rate of breathing. So in the first session of heart rate variability biofeedback, we spend 20 to 30 minutes having the client breathe at specific frequencies between 4.5 breaths and 6.5 breaths per minute. Then I, as the clinician or another clinician that may be providing services at the center, at my center, look at the specific rate of breathing that actually simulates 0.1 hertz. Nine times out of 10, it's the same rate that if you ask the client, what felt the most effortless, meaning the least amount of effort that they're able to identify, just the easiest rate is nine times out of 10, the same as the rate that we see is producing 0.1 hertz. Mm. Um, then we instruct them to breathe at that specific frequency to generate resonance in the body. When they are breathing at 0.1 hertz, there are two things that are happening. The heart rate and the breathing rate coincide. Most of our lives, we breathe in a different pattern than our heart beats. Not particularly energy efficient. When those two co-occur, there is an overall cardiovascular savings, cardiorespiratory savings. And it's really interesting that around week seven of this process, clients report an increase in energy. Their heart doesn't have to work as hard for the same outcome. But what's fascinating is I've seen over hundreds and hundreds of patients, the same thing happens with the brain. By, by around week seven or eight, the brain doesn't have to work as hard as it did for the same outcome. And I could hypothesize or posit, although we need more substantial research, looking into these mechanisms, how the heart is stimulating the brain, but that more oxygen and blood flow to the brain would just render it more efficient. Hmm. I mean, it, it makes a ton of sense. It sort yeah. of makes a, a lot of logical sense that the manner in which you breathe is going to regulate or dysregulate your heart, heartbeat specifically. And that that is sort of the the engine or pump for your <laughs> the rest of your body. And so if that's off, I mean, it's it's, it's interesting because what's coming to mind as you're speaking is like, so years and years ago in a former career, I was a classical singer, I sang opera. But part of what we had to do, part of the training was really about breath, like inhalation, retention, exhalation, how to use the exhalation. And it was really interesting because when I first started that practice, I had just come out of doing a lot of heavy lift lifting, doing construction, some like light bodybuilding. And because of that, I carried so much tension in the body. And so the my breath was really constrained and using it for singing was so challenging. But 
I what I noticed was that as I started to do these breath exercises, different forms of breath exercises, countless ones, hours a day, that my system started to regulate, that I started to get more and more comfortable within my body, my levels of stress started to go down. And so I've actually carried that practice forward into my daily life. I still do breathing exercises almost every single day. And it's really interesting because it's, it is, I've noticed within my own HRV, with the days that I don't do breath work are generally the days where I see a decrease in my HRV. And that there's, there's such a connection there for me now. It's like ingrained in my body. And so can you just speak a little bit more about the, the link and the bridge between the breath and the heart and the role that the breath plays? Because I think most of us are breathing in a very stressed out, often frantic, shallow manner, sitting at computer desks, isolated because of COVID, et cetera. And so I'm hoping that you can just unravel that a little bit. Our breath is such an incredibly powerful tool to navigate our entire body as well as brain. And when we breathe at a specific rate that elicits resonance, the resonance that's elicited, the 0.1 hertz, stimulates what's called baroreflex gain. And the baroreflex controls heart rate and blood pressure. You're making it stronger. So your reactivity physiologically becomes more precise. And what is also happening is all the changes that are happening in your heart, because the vagus nerve is linked from the front of the brain, innervated through the heart, all the way down to the gut, you're affecting all of these systems simultaneously. So you see people with gastrointestinal or digestive issues that just those issues disappear or at least reduce in severity. You see people who have, have some kind of cognitive issues, let's say impulsivity, you see that reduce. And it's not because we're doing any mind training or, or, or training in the digestive tract. We're innervating all three of these systems via the vagus nerve from the heart. So breathing at a specific rate becomes a way to transmit the benefits from the heart to other systems. Yeah, so, so fascinating. And just again, as you were talking there, I'm like a chronic breath holder. You know, I'm like the guy that, that so I catch myself if I'm in a, in a stress state or if I'm not paying attention while I'm working, my body will naturally just sort of stop breathing. And so I was, I was wondering if you could speak to that because I think that's a very common stress response that a lot of us have that when we're not really attuned into our breath or, you know, we're knee deep in emails, that our body has a, has a tendency to grip or hold or pause the breath in some way. So can you just speak to the body's response to that? Is that a stress response or, or how, does that, how does that function? It's almost an immobilization response and everything kind of pauses. It's not great for decision making. <laughs> <laughs> So I pause those decisions, Connor. And if you and I were working together, we would explore the origins, why breath holding served you. There was probably something in your life that this did and it served a function. So we'd have a creative, you know, creative half session, you know, just postulating where it came from. But the more important part <laughs> is, is addressing it, right? And there's different ways before you get to the point where you remember to exhale as opposed to hold your breath and becoming more and more aware of those breath holds. There are ways to kind of gradually step up to that. For instance, I might say, Connor, what I'd like you to do 
is set an alarm for the next few days that, you know, we pick three different spots during your day and an alarm goes off where you just check your breath. What's your breathing pattern right now? Are you holding? Are you breathing from the diaphragm? Where are you breathing from the chest? So that you start to integrate this habit of saying, where am I breathing from? The next step (laughs) that I would want to teach you is to ask, am I in a sympathetic or parasympathetic state? And you can train that clinically through biofeedback. And and I can teach you how to become aware of when you're sympathetic dominant versus parasympathetic. Now, sympathetic dominant is that fight or flight. Parasympathetic is more associated with calm, confident Connor. Three C's, by the way. (laughs) But ultimately, I want you to oscillate between the two. And to be able to say, hey, I'm in that sympathetic state, I can feel it. And then in a certain number of breaths, I'm in a parasympathetic state. So we would we would work to helping you address the breath holding through several gradual steps. Yeah, interesting. And so can you maybe say more about some of the biomarkers for what people could look for to identify when they are in that sympathetic nervous system response? Because you know, I think for most of us, what uh, we hear fight, flight, or freeze, people are very familiar with the term. But I think that the the physical indicators internally, like what that actually feels like from a physiological standpoint is is maybe a miss for a lot of people. So fight or flight manifests differently for each person. Some people will say, my brain, it's, it's like I have squirrels racing around and I can't catch them. Your mind is just racing, tons of thoughts. And CEOs have a lot of busy brain and busy brain can serve a purpose. But the, the big part is they can't always turn it off. And that's a source of stress. Other people feel heart palpitations or racing heart, particularly before performances. They just, they they feel as if their heart's going to jump out of their chest. You have other people with clammy hands, other people who feel it in their muscles. They get restless. They can't sit still. So everybody has their own markers for fight or flight. And so part of our effort is to identify those individual markers and then create a systematic plan what to do in those situations. Awesome. Well, thank you. For, thank you for that. Which brings me to my next question, which is, yeah, it was such a such a good seg- such a good segue into it. Yeah, I mean, part of the you know part of the reason why I wanted to have you on the show was to talk about how we use biofeedback as a means being able to downregulate our nervous system to be able to move out of that sympathetic nervous system response and into that parasympathetic whether it's because we're dealing with anxiety or we're just overly stressed or whatever might be happening within our lives. So what do some of those, I know you, you've given some good examples already, which is wonderful. And I, I deeply appreciate those. I'm curious for the people that are out there listening that are like, you know, g- give me the goods here. What, what, does it, what does it look like on a daily basis for, for practicing that downregulation? So I, I want to go to the terminology. I would mm-hmm. change downregulation to oscillation. Mm-hmm. Downregulation conveys a calming. And a parasympathetic state gives you the ability to flexibly engage or disengage. So oscillating from the sympathetic to the parasympathetic on demand, really key. And it can be key for reducing tension. It can be key for being open and receptive in a relationship. You know, you're, you're having an intimate conversation with a partner or a spouse and you're wanting to be able to address a challenge in, in a loving way. Guess what, folks? It's physiological more than psychological. If you are in a highly sympathetic state, 
you are going to have a very difficult time being able to really hear the other person and operate with that cognitive dexterity that may be necessary for a wonderful resolution. <laughs> it's, you know, and then we take that paradigm into other relationships. You know, you think of office mates or people that have to work as a team, coaches and quarterbacks. You think of people in the finance world. So there are all sorts of these different paradigms with the same construct, being able to take yourself from a fight or flight state to an open, receptive state. It's not necessarily just calm, but it's engaged and adaptable, okay? And so then the question is, how do you do it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's the million-dollar question right there. <laughs> so my book, Heart, Breath, Minds, I happen to have a little copyright here, is available via Amazon. And in it, I describe the 10-week process for improving heart rate variability in two ways. One, for increasing baseline heart rate variability. And two, then I, I provide the specific performance strategies that I work with people in the business world, as well as the athletic world to enhance performance. So it's two tiers. And if you're someone who just says, look, I want to feel less anxious, more focused, better mood, then I would suggest you go through a 10-week process. It's breathing 20 minutes twice a day. And there are specific activities each week for identifying resonant frequency, for practicing breathing strategies in the moment, for, for doing specific things to oscillate your heart rate, to be able to let go on demand. But then bringing it not just from the practice at home, which is 20 minutes twice a day for 10 weeks, being able to start to bring it from two bookends, like lots of people breathe in the morning and at night. <laughs> What about the rest of the day? <laughs> what about those moments that you're talking about, Connor, you know, that you're in a stressed moment and you need to oscillate really quickly to be in your optimal self? And so some of those strategies have to do with taking the breathing method and using it in the moment, doing other things as well that can be parasympathetic enhancing, things like certain music. And it's not the same song for everybody. <laughs> everybody, you know, it's, it's very personal but people have a general sense of what puts them in flow. And sometimes that oscillation can be engendered a little more quickly if you add music. Movement can also help. So, so I talk about in the book some different strategies you can use for those moment-by-moment -moment changes that you need to make very quickly. If you were an athlete, Connor, going to the Olympics, you and I would have a tool set. I would say, let's expect stress. It's going to happen. And in those moments... How are you going to handle it? And we would we would have planned ways to do that. Breathing being one of them, but building on other other techniques, movement. Sometimes it's connecting with a teammate, giving someone a hug. I've had, you know, really important men <laughs> in the Wall Street world that, that I've had them hug their kids when they're working from home during moments of stress. Why? Holding a baby puts you, for most people, in an immediate parasympathetic state. <laughs> So there, there are there are some other ways to be able to navigate, but it, it becomes fun to design an individualized tool set. Yeah, wonderful. I mean, thank you for that. I think one of the things I've kind of embarked on that journey somewhat and found a few of those pieces. Like for me, I love that you're saying that it's individual because for me, for example, like if I listen to music with words, it takes me out of that flow state because the lyrics are the only thing that I can focus in on. 
And so for, for me to get, I think that's part of my singing background, but for me to get into that flow state, what I, for me, when I'm in between clients, for example, in between sessions, and I just need to sort of like debrief or decompress, I'll use whatever, a certain breathing technique. I have several that I use. And then I'll put on music without lyrics. I have a, I have a playlist of it. And that, that music is orchestral in nature, or there's piano or whatever it is, like, you know, chill step. There's a variety of it. And that really helps me as I move through the breathing exercise. And I love the the movement component as well, because sometimes I'll use different yogic postures or different movement incorporated with the breath, depending on how stagnant or tight my body's feeling. That's usually a good indicator for me that I need that movement. And so I think then, you know, the next question that has really been on my mind, and one of the things that I really wanted to talk to you about was this, the the difference between nasal breathing and mouth breathing. And, you know, I had James Nestor on the show recently, and um, I guess it was last year, and we talked about his book, Breathe, which was phenomenal. And he talks a lot about the the importance of nasal breathing for a number of reasons, including, you know, increasing lung capacity and oxygen and all those types of different indicators. But I'm curious about your take on can nasal breathing or is there data to back up nasal breathing as a means of increasing or impacting our HRV in, in a, maybe a beneficial manner? My anecdotal evidence with patients since the publication of James Nestor's book has been that nose breathing absolutely has salutary health benefits. But I am not seeing the augment in HRV as a result of nasal breathing above and beyond the augment HRV that we would see with diaphragmatic open mouth breathing on the exhale. And so I have seen in a few instances a a small peak that was individual specific, but nothing concrete across reliably across, you know, say 30 30 client cases, still anecdotal. We need more studies. I agree and, and, and support Nestor's findings about the health benefits. Those are, those, those are absolutely credible. I'm not seeing the physiological dynamic shifts in HRV as a result, but I, I'm still open to seeing more evidence. Hmm. What I do know is that the process that the Vashilas have created and instrumented with cosmonauts in Russia. It's, you know, their process is embraced by the U.S. military. It's used with astronauts. <laughs> is that breathing diaphragmatically and it's pursed lips breathing, inhaling through the nose, gently, not deeply, gentle inhale through the nose and exhaling through a slightly open mouth as if you're blowing on warm soup does help to augment HRV. It's tried and true, and it works. So until I until I see randomized controlled trials suggesting otherwise, I'll go with that. I'm not disowning the fact that that more study needs to be investigating, exploring the impact of nasal breathing on HRV, and maybe even other physiological parameters, brain waves, beta in the brain, alpha frequency, and so I think there are a lot of physiological parameters other than just HRV that could be explored. Yeah, well well said. Thank you for that. And, you know, I think it's it's just one of those new things that sort of entered into our our field of awareness as a society of like returning back to a sort of normal way of breathing. And it's interesting cuz you know when I when I sang I certainly found that 
when I breathed in through my mouth, I could I took in too much air almost always. And so how I offset that, I had a singing teacher that was like, stop breathing through your mouth. You're like gulping air in like a whale. <laughs> and I was like, okay. And so, and so I started breathing in through the nose and it took a while to get adjusted to it. But eventually I found that my natural uh, state, my homeostasis, my anxiety levels went down. I just felt a little bit more calm in my body because what was happening is that my normal breathing when I was singing, I was taking in too much air and it was it was messing up not only my singing, but it was causing tension in my shoulder and all that kind of stuff. And so interesting. Well, okay, I'm going to end off with just sort of talking a little bit about from your perspective, like, is there such a thing as normal, quote unquote, HRV rates for different age groups? Because I think that there's quite a large range for people. And I'm interested to get your take on that. Like if someone's in their mid 30s, mid 40s, mid 50s, is there an ideal HRV like rate that they should be aiming for or setting the sort of bar towards? Or again, is that sort of person dependent? So I think people, and there's certainly metrics Elite HRV has statistical metrics. I believe Aura has published some metrics about nocturnal HRV. But people get into a dangerous zone when they try and compare arbitrarily their HRV to the quote-unquote average HRV of someone, <laughs> their age range of a different height, maybe lives in a different country, uh, you know, has four kids and they have one. There are so many mm -hmm. different variables. I think that it is much more prudent to look at your HRV range and then optimize to be at the higher end of your range and even trying to exceed the higher end of your range by a little bit. But if you see that a normative HRV for your age range is in the 60s and you're in the 40s, it's going to create panic and anxiety that may not be so necessary because it, that, you know, it could be situational. Maybe you, you, you have a disruption in sleep, maybe, you know, and for those few nights. So I would be less inclined to suggest people look for the normative data and look for their range and optimize trying to be in the upper end of their range five out of seven days a week um, and, and have that as a starting point. Yeah. And when you say that we can increase our HRV or, or begin to optimize to be in our the upper end of our range, are we talking about moving from like a 45 point or 65 point base range up like 15, 20 points? Or are we talking moving up just to the, the upper end of our range? Can we push that upper end of our range up? Like what what, what does some of that look like? Yeah. So there, there's different ways to look at the range. So you could just do your nocturnal HRV with the aura ring and then do it, take it every night and then create a mean. So your average HRV weekly and looking at that over a month period. And you'll have you'll have a range. Week one, maybe your HRV was in the 50s and week two it was around 57, but week three, you dropped into the 40s. And that was after your COVID <laughs> vaccine. So you start to see a range. It's just different for each person. Generally, um, and I'm, I'm referring to using the aura ring, I, you see sometimes a range of, you know, seven to 15 Elite HRV has kind of a different range. So you can't, and WHOOP as well. So you can't really compare across the different technology because the metrics are just difficult to cross compare. Um, but getting a sense with your technology, what your range is, trying to stay 
in the top end of that range and, and even trying to push it a little bit. The big part is really looking for those dips, understanding what's happening and enhancing recovery. But the other way, Connor, is to look at your HRV in the morning and the evening and trying to close the disparity. And for some people, they've seen their HRV super high, like Superman heart. But by the evening, it, it's, it's a fragmented version of that. And it has so many profound implications for longevity, as well as brain dexterity and functioning that we want to close that gap. And so then we begin to tinker and insert HRV enhancing <laughs> habits lifestyles, rest, space, turning off, turning off your phone by a certain time at night, even turning it off during the day, adding music that we test in the office is parasympathetic enhancing. Singing actually, Connor, is parasympathetic enhancing for many people. It's a great way to stimulate the parasympathetic nervous system for kids too. It can be calming. So I, I love that you you have a, an interest in this and you are also a singer. So just in summary, two different ways, looking at your HRV range over a month period, just using, let's say, the nocturnal HRV metric on Aura, or the other one is using a device that captures HRV, moment HRV, so elite HRV or EV, EVU TPS from Thought Technology. You can actually take your HRV in a little two-minute snapshot, you take that in the morning and you take that at night and you start to log it, what your morning and evening HRV is. And you have certain habits that you check off if you did. 30 minutes of exercise, 20 minutes of breathing twice a day, eating three meals, singing. <laughs> and, and you start to get a sense of how to close that gap. And you change the habits and influences so that eventually the disparity, instead of it being 30 or 40, is five or 10. Interesting. Okay. Well, I think I'm going to, Hey, I'm gonna, probably going to go do that. I'm going to go buy that device and then, and then embark on this endeavor. Cause I, I have your, have your book out in my, out in my living room and I'm about to begin it. And so admittedly, I haven't read through it yet, but I read through enough of your material that I knew I had to have you on the show. So maybe let's, I, I'm, I'm curious just about this last piece. How important is the role of cardio in HRV? Because I think that's the one thing that we haven't talked about, the dreaded cardio. Where does that, where does that fit in? How does it impact HRV? And, and then we'll, we'll just end there. So cardiovascular exercise will help to boost HRV. High-intensity workouts, running, even biking for long distances, all really fantastic for HRV, highly recommend. And so you will see those gains. It's really interesting, just like alcohol, it has different magnitude of impact per person. For some people, it, it's just a game changer for their HRV. For other people, it's just a subtle boost. So it's it's really interesting with HRV to get to know your body and what inputs to track and act. Yeah, okay, wonderful. Well, that's a good place for us to pause here. And thank you so much for your work. Thank you so much for, for just being on the show today and talking about some of these things because it's something that as I've dug more into health and wellness that has just continued to come up. This idea, the concept of HRV and improving it and and having it be a baseline indicator for our health and wellness at, at really any age. So I really appreciate the work that you're doing. And for everyone that's out there, you can certainly go and check out Dr. Lagos's book, Heart, Breath, Mind, Train Your Heart to Conquer Stress and Achieve Success. 
And uh, Dr. Lagos, where can people find out more about you if they're curious about your work? Sure. My personal website is Dr. Dr. Leah, L-E-A-H, Lagos, L-A-G-O-S dot com. And if you want uh, to just kind of read about recent happenings in HRV and and how we're trying to bring this to the world, my Twitter account is at Dr. Leah Lagos. Perfect. Thank you so much for tuning in. You can find all those links in the show notes below on whatever platform you're listening or watching us on. And uh, thank you so much, Dr. Lagos, for joining us. Thank you, Connor. Wonderful. And until next week, this is Connor Beaton signing off. Mm